Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. hope for today is is that the Lord would show us something of himself that would move us to a deeper following of him. And I'm thinking specifically of for those of us who are feeling bottomed out, fruitless, um, confused, uh, failed, far from God. And I'm hoping that the Lord will show something of himself to those of us who are in that place that move us to a place of receiving from him of his fullness and following him. And for the rest of us, that we would also be moved to follow him and rally around those people and show them the Lord's love. I need the Lord's help. And so, Lord, I want to ask now that um, you would reveal something of who you are to us. I pray, Lord, that you give us a vision of your glory, lifted up, raised from the dead, full of great power and splendor and majesty and graciousness and kindness, providing for us, meeting us in our need, restoring us. I pray, Lord, that you'd open up your word to us and illuminate it with your Holy Spirit and give us understanding and belief. In Jesus' name, amen. So what I want to try to do to show you uh, something of who the Lord is and what he's like is to look at John 21, which is an amazing passage about uh, Jesus meeting his disciples in a an hour of need. It was a confusing time for them too. Um, Their life was in disarray. A lot of their expectations and things that they thought were going to happen were different. Uh, And so it was a state of feeling that same sense of confusion, that same sense of failure, that same sense of uh, not having the answers. And by looking at how the Lord works with them, I'm hoping that we can get a sense of what he's like and go along for that journey and experience something. And so there's four parts that I'm, I'm hoping we can, we can look at. Um, and I'll just state them briefly, and then we'll go into each one of them. Um, the first is the amazing reality that Jesus is alive, and he makes himself known to us. Um, the second thing is, is that Jesus meets our needs. The third thing is, is that Jesus is the one that makes us fruitful. And then the fourth is that Jesus is the one who restores us. So let's take a look at John 21, and we'll go through each one of these. First thing let's take a look at is is that Jesus is alive and makes himself known. 
John 21. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. So Jesus is making himself known. That idea of manifesting isn't just appearing, it's actually making yourself known. There's a disclosure of something of who he is. And it's an amazing statement at this time in the story because if you remember just a few chapters earlier, Jesus was killed. Now, we have sort of you know, hindsight of a couple thousand years, and it's entered into our thinking, of course, Jesus is raised from the dead. Of course, he is alive. And it's a kind of an idea that's oftentimes out there, but it doesn't necessarily enter into our functional thinking, something that is a driving force in our reality. But at this point, that is a remarkable statement. If we rewind to the beginning of the book of John, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, right? And we find out that that word is Jesus. So Jesus was the word with God, and he was God, and he became flesh. And then he lived among us, and he showed us his glory. He showed us something of his character. He did miracles among the, uh, the disciples and other people. He turned the water into wine. He healed lepers. He made the lame uh, uh, walk and the deaf hear and the blind to see, right? He cast out demons, and he, he showed something of his power and his authority and his generosity and his compassion and loving kindness, right? But then something remarkable happened. Uh, He was killed. And it's not just the sort of thing that's a uh, uh, kind of a a, a questionable act. It's a very long, drawn-out, brutal death like being crushed over hours. And so when it says here that Jesus manifested himself, it's an amazing statement because if you lived and you saw those events, it would not at all be the kind of thing that would be anything like anything that you had experienced. It doesn't happen, and yet here he is. So if you're the disciples and you've watched this happen and he's already shown something of himself to you, it's going to be what is going on now. And it's going to cause you to see the lens of everything that you've done in a new light that's going to make you feel confused, perhaps, uh, questioning your uh, loyalty to him, questioning whether or not you fail, let him down, a whole host of things, right? And we're going to see how that unfolds here in a second. But the first thing I just want to ask us as we sort of deal with this issue of uh, God revealing something of himself to us is, is Jesus alive in our functional thinking? He is alive. That Jesus, the one that was killed, who was the word who became flesh, who did all those things, is that Jesus functional in our thinking? Do we see him as raised from the dead, are we gripped with that reality in a way that it factors into our thoughts, our attitudes, our ambitions, our hopes? Because we're going to need that in order to be restored. We're going to have to see something of who he is so that 
we can be moved to the place where we follow him, where the seat of the restoration actually happens. So how does he do it for his disciples? It says Jesus manifested himself again. He had done it in this um, book twice already. And he's manifests himself to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. That's another name for the Sea of Galilee. So this is a very specific place where they had done a lot of their uh, ministry together. So the, the place is sort of uh, hearkening back to not only the events of the recent weeks, which is death, but also the totality of his ministry and, and who he was. Simon Peter, verse 2, and Thomas called Didymus, and Nathanael of Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So Jesus shows something of his character to the disciples, and he meets them in this rather interesting situation. The disciples decide that they want to go fishing. Peter, in particular, wants to go fishing. And this isn't kind of like sports fishermen like we would do. This was his profession by trade. So in some sense, he's going back to something that he, he knows and that he's, he's comfortable with. And they are on this lake. Some other disciples go with him. And they work throughout the night and end up empty handed, right? So Peter's probably feeling a deep sense now of failure, right? Uh, not only has he come from the place where he has uh, lived these tumultuous couple of weeks and seen uh, uh, Jesus stand trial, uh, denied that he knew him, seen him uh, know that he was put to death, and then had him appear again, 
But now he's going back to something while he's sort of wrestling with his confusion and he is not experiencing any of his success. He is coming up empty-handed. And uh, it's early morning. They're about maybe 100 yards from the land and it's just breaking. And so there on the shore is, is this sort of this faint silhouette perhaps of a person, right? And he offers this advice after asking, have you caught anything? And they say no. And he's like, cast your nets on the other side, right? And it's sort of like, well, what else am I supposed to do, right? I mean, if, if you guys have ever gone fishing, advice runs rampant, right? Um, but uh, in this particular case, okay, maybe there's something to there, you know, sort of why not give it a try, right? And they enclose this incredible quantity of fish. So the first thing that Jesus does for them is give them this uh, breakthrough. They've been working hard all night long, and they haven't gotten anything on their own. But at his bidding, they let down the nets, and they enclose this incredible quantity of fish. So from the standpoint of Peter experiencing this, this sense of failure, the Lord actually gives him that sense of uh, success. But then the second thing that uh, Jesus does is he anticipates their needs, okay? Um, and so he has this breakfast all ready to go, and the breakfast has some, it's a charcoal fire, it's uh, some fish, it's some bread, and uh, he invites them to bring some of their fish and have something to eat. Um, so all without reference to anything about where they are or what they're supposed to be thinking or what they're wrestling with, he simply knows these disciples of mine need a good breakfast, they need some food, and they need a little bit of uh, feeling of success. So when Jesus reveals himself to us, when he reveals himself to his disciple, he meets the needs of those disciples, right? So for us, when we're in that position of feeling down and out, and we're reckoning Jesus who is raised from the dead, do we have that picture in our mind that Jesus is actually the one who is able to meet my needs when I'm feeling like I have nothing else to give, or nothing else that I'm being fruitful, or I'm just having physical needs. But there's much more to the story, and that leads us to the third point, that Jesus is the one who makes his followers fruitful, and alone makes his followers fruitful. I want to go back to that uh, verse where it says, it is the Lord, right? Because how do they know? Jesus is kind of far distant. He's out there. Like, like, why do they not recognize him? Probably because it's a far way away. But what is it about enclosing this great quantity of fish at the bidding of this person on the shore that makes them think it is the Lord? Well, because this isn't the first time this happened. If you go to Luke 5, you find that at the start of Jesus's ministry uh, that a similar miracle happened. He was teaching. He, was, he got on the boat because there were large crowds that were pressing on him. And at the end of that, he told Simon, Peter, the same person here, to put out his nets into, uh, put, put out into deep water and let out his nets for a catch. And Simon, Peter, said, Master, we worked hard all night long and didn't catch anything. But at your bidding, I'll let down the nets. And of course, they let down the nets and they 
closed a huge quantity of fish, uh, that there were two boats in that instance, and they began to sink that there were so many. And Peter sees something of who this Jesus is, and he says, Lord, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. And then Jesus says, don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to be catching men. And if you look at some of the other passages in Mark and in Matthew, you see that when Jesus called his disciples, uh, he says uh, to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I like the rendering of one of them, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. It's something that happens to them that the Lord brings about in their life. So this becomes an acted parable of something much deeper that the disciples are probably really feeling. If we go back to the point where he had, uh, Peter had denied Jesus, right? Uh, you're going to feel probably like, I really failed the Lord. I let him down. I was the disciple who was supposed to be the rock, and in the moment of my uh, uh, testing, I came up empty-handed. So how can I be sort of the, the rock that the Lord was saying I was going to be, that upon you I'm going to be building your church, right? Well, because it was the Lord who made him fruitful and was going to make him fruitful, it didn't depend on him. It depended on what the Lord was going to do. And just like the miracle where, Master, we worked hard all night long and didn't get everything, but at your bidding, we're going to enclose a great quantity of fish, and they do, that's going to be exactly the same way that, their that his ministry is going to work. In other words, the follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men is connected with the way that that miracle worked. On his own, he's going to work hard all night long and not get anything, but at the master's bidding, he's going to let down the nets and enclose a great quantity of fish. And it's not just about the fish, it's about his effectiveness and fruitfulness in the ministry. The ministry is going to work exactly the same way that the miracle works. It's an important restoration here because what's our tendency? Our tendency is uh, to begin to feel as we walk with the Lord and serve him that um, rightly so we own part of it, right? But we can begin to sort of feel the pressure of making things happen and getting results, right? Because uh, we want to be uh, shown to be followers of the Lord. And if you're laid bare and you're not producing anything, it can be a very uh, difficult thing. Um, parents, you know that when you have your kids, you want to be uh, seen as being competent, capable, loving. You don't like to be laid low. Um, this also happens to leaders. Um, oh, I, I had a, I don't know if I should say it. I, I had a, <laughs> I spent a lot of time with uh, youth in different ways, in different contexts. And uh, there was this one time we were on a college trip. I'm looking at Caleb because he was there also. And we were driving through Ohio and I got talking. And those of you who know that me that when I get talking, I can be very animated and the energy starts surging, right? And probably is coupled with the coffee. Um, and, and so we were driving through Ohio uh, on this way down to visit my brother. And to my great dismay, I looked in my rearview mirror and saw flashing lights and I was pulled over for a speeding ticket. Uh, this was not my proudest moment as a leader, particularly when all those who were in the back seat were 
laughing and wanted me to hold it up so they could take a picture and post it on Facebook. Uh, <laughs> yeah. As leaders, as parents, we're oftentimes in positions where we want to be fruitful. We want to know that we have that sense of being effective in the things of the Lord. And when we come out empty-handed, the tendency is to want to move the dials on our life to try to make things happen. But the fruitfulness is really in the Lord, right? We're often like Peter who work hard all night long and don't see anything happen because we're ineffective to make those things happen. It's ultimately something that only God can do in, in, in the heart. So here, Peter is learning an important lesson that is Jesus who's the one who makes him fruitful. And his effectiveness in that ministry isn't going to be on the basis of uh, his sort of character alone as uh, this apostle, but it's going to be based upon the same Jesus who said, let down your nets for a catch. Master, we worked hard, night, hard all night long and didn't get anything. Let you down your nets for a catch. And they did, and they enclosed a great quantity of fish. How about us? Where do we see our fruitfulness coming from? Is it something that we feel that uh, uh, is based upon our, our talents, our skills, our abilities? Uh, maybe we're good at a sport or an instrument, or we're good uh, at, uh, you know, doing things in companies or uh, different kinds of trades? Is it based on that? Is it based upon our finances, the fact that maybe we're wealthy or well-to-do? Or conversely, we're not going to be fruitful because we don't have anything, right? Is it based upon our uh, intellect, our ability to understand? Um, is it based upon sort of our family history, um, the families that we're part of, the connections that we have? Where do we think our fruitfulness comes from. Jesus is wanting to move us to a place where we understand that our fruitfulness comes not from ourselves, but from him. I want to take a look at, um, just to show you this more specifically for us in uh, Luke, um, sorry, John. This is John 15, 16. So just a few chapters earlier, Jesus says to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. So the first thing is, Jesus is saying, it wasn't your initiative that came to me. I was the one that chose you. And the reason I chose you was that you would bear fruit. You're going to be faithful. It was Jesus' initiative on his disciples that caused it. And then earlier in that chapter, John 15, 4 through 5, he says this, abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So what do we have so far? We're in the place where maybe we're feeling fruitless. We're feeling like we failed. We're feeling inadequate, incapable, or incompetent. And we're feeling maybe like the Lord is distant. First thing that we have is, is that the Lord is alive. He's been raised from the dead and he's making himself known. The second is that he's tending to our needs. And the third is that the, the fruitfulness is really in him. So when we put those things together, we start to understand, hey, wait a minute. 
I may not have a very good picture of the reality. Maybe the issue is, is that my view of the reality that I'm in and what ultimately constitutes fruitfulness in the fullest sense of that is distorted. Maybe I'm not having a good picture of who the Lord is, or maybe I'm not having a good sense of what his provision is, or maybe I'm not having a good sense of, of his power to actually change my situation. But the reality is that these are the things that the Lord is. Okay, so what if we find ourselves in that situation? What do we do, right? <laughs> we receive the fullness of who the Lord is. And I want to show you that in the fourth part by looking at how Jesus deals specifically with Peter. And what we're going to see is, is that Jesus restores his followers. That's our fourth point. So let's pick up the passage in verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. So Peter had obviously seen that the Lord was alive from the dead. He had been part of these final agonizing weeks. And he's at a point where he is at his lowest. He knows that the Lord is alive. He knows that the Lord makes himself known. He knows that the Lord provides his needs. He's seen it again and again in the ministry. He knows that the Lord is the one who makes fruitful. He just saw that miracle happen, which reminded him of the miracle earlier, which was tied to the fruitfulness, not only of him as a fisherman, but also his ministry. And yet he's at this place where the Lord has to deal specifically with something in his life. Well, what had gone wrong? Well, earlier, Peter had denied the Lord, right? Uh, he said, I had, don't know the man. This is about when Peter, Jesus was about to die, right? I don't know the man. And so uh, now there's this situation where that's no doubt a factor in the way that Peter is viewing himself, Right? He had said earlier, though all else fall away, I won't. And yet now he's one of the ones who has fallen away. Do you guys ever feel like you've let the Lord down big? Right? Real big. Like, like you know, not, not, not small. The, the, I mean, <laughs> Peter let the Lord down in a big way. And yet the Lord now asks him this question, and he says, do you love me more than these? So what's the these? What's the Lord asking him? Well, one possibility is, do you love me more than you love your life, your profession, your purpose, your fisherman, right? He just enclosed the great quantity of fish. They could be sitting by the charcoal fire. They go for this walk. Do you love me more than these? The Lord may ask us the same thing. You know, does do you love me more than you love your, your work? Do you love me more than you love the, uh, the things that you do? 
You could be referring to the charcoal fire, you know, some of the, the comforts, the nice warm breakfast that they have. Maybe the Lord is asking us, do you love me more than you love your uh, comforts, your homes, your possessions, those sorts of things, right? Um, he could be asking him, do you love me more than uh, you love these other disciples? The Lord could ask us the same thing. Maybe he's asking, you know, Peter, hey, do you love me uh, more than you love these disciples? And if he asked us that, do you love me more than, you know, your, your relationships, your desire for that, uh, <laughs> if you're single, that guy or that girlfriend, or uh, if you're lonely, that particular friendship, or your siblings or your parents or your children. He could ask us this, the, same, the same thing. Um, but I don't know that that's what he's actually asking him here. We don't know. But I think the most likely possibility is that he's asking Jesus, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Okay. Why would that be such an important question to ask? Because earlier they were arguing at the Last Supper, one of the last meals that they had shared together before a very similar meal here, they were asking, they were arguing among themselves about who was the greatest. And the whole issue was each of them were arguing and saying, uh, though all else fall away, I'm going to be the one who's going to succeed. There was a, a view of themselves that says, I'm the one who is uh, the, the, the greatest. I'm the one who is the most fruitful, the the the, the best disciple, right? Uh, and Peter would have pretty good claim to do that, right? He was the only one of the disciples who walked on water. We saw that uh, a couple months ago. Um, he was the first of the disciples to confess Jesus as the Messiah, right? He had been sort of part of that inner ring that saw the transfiguration. Uh, he had been part of the, like the other disciples, the feeding of the 5,000. But Peter sort of has enjoyed this sense of being a prominent disciple. And the Lord had said of him, you're Peter, on this rock, Petros, I'm going to build my church. And so Peter had a very good claim at the Last Supper when they're having this argument to be saying, hey, I'm the important one. I'm the one that uh, is the greatest, right? I have the greater love for you than the rest of the disciples do. And so this is a really important question because Jesus is saying, if he is saying, and we don't know, but if he is saying, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? It's getting to the core of where his value actually is. Is it because he sees himself as better than the others, more committed, more dedicated, or is it because the Lord is the one who has made him fruitful? and has provided his needs, and is the one who establishes and who has given him that calling. And Peter has this moment where he has to reckon with that. And so he starts off by saying, yes, Lord, but like we sometimes do when somebody asks us a, a, a two-part question, right? You can say yes to one half of it <laughs> and then clarify what you mean by stating the thing that you were saying the yes to. So look at how Peter answers. It's, it's very telling. Do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He doesn't say, you know I love you more than these other disciples do. 
or any of the other answers. He simply says, you know that I love you. Peter has come to a place where he is confronted with his own failure in a way that allows him to be on a singular track in his relationship with the Lord without reference to other people. He no longer is looking at other people and saying, and sort of gauging himself in comparison to them. He's simply saying, Lord, I know who you are and I love you. Peter was in a difficult spot bottomed out because he was in a crisis of his identity. Who he thought he was, he actually wasn't. He wasn't the disciple who would lay down everything. He was the disciple who valued his life when the screws started getting tightened. And the Lord meets him in that need, not by saying, why did you do that? Why were you like that? Why did you fail me that way? Confess. But by simply getting him to reaffirm what he did have. Namely, without reference to other people, I'm no better than anybody else. I love you. How about for us? Do we find ourselves in comparison games with others? Are we sort of looking at the the, the curve of our lives and our success and saying, uh, I'm more committed, more dedicated to the Lord? Or, again, conversely, I'm not as committed or dedicated as others. They're the strong Christian. I'm the weak one. Or I'm the strong Christian. They're the weak one. Or do we look at other things that other people have? Maybe this person has a thriving uh, ministry. You know, they're a gifted uh, speaker and uh, evangelist and leading lots of people. And we're saying to ourselves, oh, uh, they're the ones who are the, the fruitful ones. I'm on the down route. Or if we have that ministry, uh, <laughs> look at me and the things that I've been able to do, as opposed to seeing where it actually comes from. And we could do this across a number of categories, can't we? Do we do this with our, uh, our uh, material possessions, our giftings, our, our other kinds of talents? Peter had to come to the point where he said, I love the Lord, and that's it. Um, this is difficult for me. I grew up in a family of four boys. <laughs> I'm number two. Uh, my parents are my heroes, uh, and I say that with full conviction. Um, but I used to love uh, being the best at different kinds of things, right? And so there was a deep sense for me of being right, being good being the one who had the answers, right? Um, you never, uh, it's easy to learn over time that that's not the case. Uh, I, <laughs> I lost chess to an eighth grader the other, or eight-year-old the other day. Um, when I was younger, I was pretty good at chess. I used to play with my brothers, right? And I used to enjoy winning and then sort of exude the success of that, right? But you guys know if you grow up in families with siblings how easy it is to compare yourself with other people. You guys know that in the professional world how easy it is to compare yourself with other people and, and say, oh, I've made more money. I've been more successful. I'm better off. I'm more fruitful. You know what it's like when you're uh, raising a family. You're looking to have the kids that are the good ones, the proud representation, and we sort of shy away from the ones that are a little bit more trouble or difficult. I must have failed as a parent, right? Um, and so there's any of a number of categories that we start playing this game on. And all of those times that we're doing that, what's happening is, is we're taking our eyes off the Lord, who is the one who alone makes us 
fruitful. This is what happened to Peter, and the Lord's way of going about restoring him was to get at the core of that issue and say, do you really love me more than these? Are you really a better follower than the others? And the answer isn't, yes, I am. It's, yes, Lord, you know I love you. His love for the Lord is a singular love. So how does the Lord then want us to be restored to him? The first thing is what Peter said, Lord. Are we resting upon the fact that Jesus is alive, raised from the dead, that he is who he says he is, and that he's given us the hope and promise of eternal life? Are we counting on him to be the one who provides for our needs? Are we counting on him to be the one that makes us fruitful? Because when we do all of those things, our value isn't wrapped up in the things that we're doing, and therefore, if it is called into question, we feel that sense of failure. It's wrapped up in who the Lord is and is doing and, and, and is causing to be in us, and therefore, is in a state of receiving, and is therefore full of joy, because that reality is there. Lord, yes, you know I love you. Is that something that we can say? If the Lord were to ask us, do you love me more than these, would it be something, yes, Lord, I believe the totality of who you are and your promises, and I love you, and I'm banking on who you are. What's the result for Peter? What happens? Well, verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, this is Jesus continuing, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Jesus gives a little insight to Peter what's going to happen to him. And at first it sounds like it's bad news. He's going to die, and this particular reference means he's going to be crucified the same way that Jesus was. So it sounds to me like, like oh, this is you know, Jesus is saying something of his death. This is bad. <laughs> uh, I actually think it's the opposite. Because the last time Peter's life was laid on the line, he said, I'm not going to do it. He said to the Lord, no. He says, I don't know you, and he valued his life. Now that he comes to this place where the Lord restores and the Lord gives him a little bit of insight, receiving, and is therefore full of joy because that reality is there. Wow, I get to listen to my sermon. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> That's good. I got to figure out how that one happened. <laughs> The Lord gives Peter a picture of something that's going to happen in his life. And the next time around, he's not going to deny the Lord. He's going to go all the way. The Lord's dealing with him of centering him back on his person and who he was, of providing for him in his hour of need, of promising that fruitful wasn't going to prove vain. The Lord's purposes for him you're Peter, on this church I will establish my rock. And his confession that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, that is going to be effective. He is going to be fruitful. And when he is stretched finally, ultimately, to the very, very end of his capacities and abilities, he is going to 
do it unto death. The next time around, he will not deny the Lord. So the Lord's restoration is effective. That gives us a lot of comfort, doesn't it? If the Lord is able to do that with Peter who denied him, how much more for us? What does Peter do? Well, Peter looked, turned around, <laughs> saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back in his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about that man? <laughs> it's easy for us to go back, isn't it, to our ways of comparing ourselves. Having gotten a verdict on us, what about the next person over there? The Lord has some strong words from him. Jesus said, verse 22, if I want to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Right, and so then it goes on to the sort of this end of this rumor won't go, you know, will go out that the disciple will never die. But the point is, is that Jesus again recenters him upon himself. So how does the Lord deal with us? If you're here today and you're feeling I am fruitless, I am, I'm like walking dead. I have nothing to give, no capacity, no sight of having any capacity, no sight of fruitfulness, no sight of. Uh, uh, value or worth. You're in good company. You're in Peter's company, who the Lord restored. And how did he do it? He showed himself. He reminded him that he was the word who was the beginning, who was with God and was God and became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory and he died and he was raised. So the first thing is, do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? Is he active in your functional thinking, in your, the core of your, your sort of your conviction, your belief. Yes, God did this. Okay, then what's the character of that person? Is this a, a God who's powerful, who's good? Yes, look at all the miracles. For Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, there's, it's not like it's a different person. I think we, we, we get lost in that idea. For Jesus now, everything that he lived in this life is part of his near memory, it's not like for us 2,000 years ago. For him, the experience of the cross and all of that agony and his dealing with the disciples and this miracle, that's, that's in his memory like now, near. So when we go to him and we say, you're raised from the dead, we're actually talking about a person who has that sense of brokenness and that sense of being laid low and then overcoming it here, Okay. So when we think, okay, I believe God raised Jesus from the dead, am I seeing that as the person who is the totality of who he is near, okay? Do we believe that God is uh, the one who tends to our needs? Do we believe that God is the one who ultimately makes us fruitful? And if so, when we need the restoration, do we come to him as the God who also restores? Lord, we've talked about a lot of... Um, things today, and I know that only you can show us this. Um, I pray, Lord, that you give my brothers and sisters here a revelation of who you are and allow them to see you as who you really are, God, who became flesh and dwelt among us and died and was buried and was raised to newness of life. And not that you're just uh, abstract, but that you make yourself known, that you provide for our needs, 
and that you alone make us fruitful so that we're in a place where we no longer need to start trying to take stock of what we bring to the table, but receive from you everything that you are so that we would be drawn to a place where we follow you. I'm asking that you would do that for some here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.